HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, makers of some of the best organic cheeses. Learn more at cowgirlcreamery.com. Have you ever wanted to open a restaurant, launch your own food brand, or dive into the ever-changing world of food media? Well, buckle up. Join us for Aspiration to Action, a special live podcast on Monday, June 3rd at Haven's Kitchen in Manhattan. Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott, hosts of Life's a Banquet, will lead us through tales of the good, the bad, and the transformative. Featuring Food World innovators and HRN hosts Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly, Eli Sussman, host of The Line, along with his brother Max, and Allison Kane, host of In the Sauce, in conversation with Jenny Britton Bauer. Light refreshments will be provided by Paris Gourmet, Wolfer Estate Vineyard, and To Honey. Get your tickets before they sell out by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash action. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to a special episode of Speaking Broadly. As you know, Speaking Broadly, I interview amazing women on their journeys to success. And one of the things I am always trying to find out is uh, how to live a better life, how to achieve your dreams. And I am here living one of my dreams. I'm in Montana at Paws Up Resort, and I've met an extraordinary woman, Jackie Catch cage. <laughs> and um, Jackie has a theory of horsemanship that I think is going to be so relevant to all of you for living your best life. So Jackie, I'm so happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I got to see you in the ring today and you had um, a family on horses and you were herding small cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. It looks like a lot of fun. You know, it really, it is a lot of fun. And most people come in uh, kind of nervous and never having one, maybe even ridden a horse, a little less moved cows. And um, what I love the most about it, especially doing it in that family atmosphere is being able to talk about like what is necessary within the family unit to really get this job done and the communication and the patience and, you know, being aware of your surroundings and that sort of thing. And so you know, you see adults and then the teenagers, we had two teenagers in with us and um, getting to watch them kind of open up and blossom and take a leadership role and be able to communicate with their parents on even where their parents needed to go or where they, what they needed from their parents. It's just a lot of fun. So wait, so how do you encourage the communication among them? Like, cause it sounds like it actually could reshape a family dynamic. 
You know, it really, it absolutely does. And it's fun to kind of watch as you initially start, like who, who are the different personalities in the family. And I think that really as, as the, the Wrangler kind of helping facilitate the situation, it's being able to recognize, you know, who it is that might need a little bit more encouragement to come out of their shell and, and giving them that at the opportune moments. Um, but I guess just like you would anybody, whether I try to do that with my employees too, recognize those, uh, those key moments where maybe they take a little bit of a leap and, and really make a big deal out of that. And, um, you know, to be honest, I think it, a lot of it is even when you do something wrong or when somebody does something wrong, figuring out that way to say, Oh, maybe I would have done it this way or like, Hey, be mindful of X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and, and also being able to talk about those times when it didn't quite go correctly. Uh huh. Well, it was in what I saw today, the, uh, the teenagers were doing a, a great job. I mean, they were all doing a great job, mm-hmm. but the teenagers were helping, you know, move the horses along. And the, the mother had sort of, um, you know, let some cows out and you're like, don't forget about them. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was amazing. And of course, and the teenagers, teenagers stepped up and, um, kind of swooped in and helped mom along. So it was really nice. They, they were a really nice fluid team by the end of them. So can you tell me about your style of horsemanship and what you believe here at Paws Up is the best way to work with horses? I know that a lot of people talk about breaking horses and that's not something you believe. No. <laughs> um, so the kind of the most uh, simplified way to explain it is that there are two main schools of thought uh, when working with horses. You've got um, a way that was and, and I'm using very uh, kind of specific terms maybe, but they, they stand for a much broader um, audience or a much broader group of people because remember the um, working with horses goes all the way back to um, the settlers moving across the country and uh, becoming cattle ranchers. Um, so this is centuries ago that we're talking about and you've got what um, is now kind of the, uh, the, the southern Texas kind of cowboy way where you still hear a lot about breaking horses, um, that refers to breaking their spirit. Um, so definitely a master servant relationship there. We're going to tie this horse down. We're going to tie its legs. We're going to put a saddle on it. We're going to blindfold it. We're going to get on it and we're just going to let it, you know, buck itself out until it has no more will to fight. And until it understands that I now hold kind of that power over it. So, um, it's a, they didn't need their horse to be real, what we call handy, They needed to be able to move cattle uh, from point A to point B. So from where their ranches were in in that area uh, to the railroads up north. Um, And then you have uh, a second school that is becoming kind of more and more popular. A lot of people know it now as natural horsemanship. The term horse whispering comes up a lot. It's something that people know. Robert Redford's movie kind of started uh, making that popular. And a couple clinicians have really kind of clung on to that. Um, but really it's a style that comes from the vaqueros, um, down in Mexico. And, um, they, they worked cattle quite a bit differently, um, and realized quickly that they needed a horse that was athletic and agile and interested and wanting to be there as much as the cowboy did, because at that point, all they had was their horse to get the job done. And they were paid in a way, um, where, as well as they got the job done is how much money they got paid. Um, so they decided, you know, maybe we don't need a servant. Maybe we need a partner. I could be a leader and I can kind of help show this horse the way, but, um, but I want this horse to want to be with me. And, um, just so completely opposite, completely opposite. So we're not breaking their spirit. Yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, to move cattle. Exactly. The, yeah. Exactly. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of the traditions that we like to follow. A lot of people now know the term buckaroo, um, which is, it comes from the word vaquero, uh, because in the Spanish, the V is a B. So vaquero, right? Buckaroo is kind of now the Americanized version. Um, and you see a lot of, um, of, of people working in that style now, which really just takes, um, recognizes the horse's need sometimes to have to move its feet. They're a, a prey animal, right? And here we are, a predator, saying, hey, I'm going to interact with you and I'm going to put my hands on you, my claws, if you will. Um, but don't worry, trust trust that I'm not going to climb on your back and just devour you for lunch like a mountain lion would. Um, <laughs> so it, it, really, it does look different when you put yourself in the mind of a horse. Right. And so you can't blame them. And I think that that's another, that is probably the fundamental difference is in that vaquero style, you take into account the horse's feelings and the horse's nature. Um, and you give them the dignity to allow them to feel that way and express whatever that emotion is that is elicited by your presence or by what you're asking. Whereas you've got that other way where it's, I don't care about your emotions or how you're feeling. This is what I need you to do. And, and, and so in your day-to-day practice here, like how does that um, exhibit itself? Like if you're trying to bring a horse along. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so we start all of our horses, um, what we call at liberty, which means we don't put ropes on them. We don't put halters on them. We put in, into a big 50-foot circular, what we call round pen. Um, and we stand in the middle of that round pen and we move that horse using our body language. Horses are very... Um, uh, sensitive. Uh, you hear the term horse whispering. I said a lot. I don't like that. It makes it sound magical. Like there's some mystical mind meld connection between it's not They're a prey animal and they're reading your body language. And if I straighten up and I square my shoulders up, I seem more threatening to a horse. I'm that horse is going to want to move based on that threat. Um, and of course in my mind, I'm saying, Hey, I mean, you no harm, but I do need you to kind of move. And I teach that horse it's okay to move away. And I I teach them always move your feet because a horse's instinct is to flee, to move. So imagine being a predator. If I then corner it or rope it or tie it down, that's not building any trust because I'm taking away the one thing that it feels comfortable will save its life. So instead, whenever it needs to move or leave, we allow that to happen. And, um, And it just kind of goes from there. We put flags on them and tarps on them. Eventually we do put a rope on them Hmm. because eventually we're going to saddle them. Right. Um, But it's all, we, we talk a lot about feel with the horse. Um, How is the horse moving? How is the horse reacting to us feeling its energy and then countering with something within you, whether it's to change your mindset, to change how you're carrying your body Um, because it can't speak English. So do you feel some kind of mind meld? with the animal so that your thoughts are connecting. I mean, you're thinking hard, like I am not a threat to you. I'm sort of giving you freedom. So I mean, I guess if you, if you've ever watched that, that movie or read the book, the secret, you know, uh, it talks a lot about like whatever thought you put into the universe is Uh going to come back to you. I don't know about how much of that, um, you know, is true. But what I do know is that our subconscious changes the way that we carry our body when you're anxious whether you realize it or not maybe you're clenching your jaw 
and a horse can send, not sense, it can see that your jaw's clenched and that the muscles in your mouth are different. And by the way, they do the same thing. So now they're internalizing, <laughs> they're like, this predator is anxious. It's doing what I do when I'm anxious. Oh Lord, why? Like, and now we're heightened. <laughs> so it's, I don't know that it's a mind meld so much as that we subconsciously change or when we're stressed, you know, maybe my shoulders are tense. It can see that. So I constantly am practicing in my mind, whatever it is that I want to convey to that horse, I kind of say, I mean, you no harm, Mm -hmm. um, not because it's going to read my mind, but because it puts my body mentally into a state that maybe now it can understand all it has is its ability to read my body language. And, um, then what about working with all of the guests? Like once a horse is trusting, they're trusting forever. They don't Mm -hmm. mind all these people like you know, seeing themselves awkwardly on a saddle and they have no idea how to ride and they're digging their heels in and we're mm-hmm. flopping around. Mm-hmm. All of that happens. They're pulling to stop their horse while kicking to make their horse go at the same time. And our horses, God bless them, have learned to fill in the blanks and say, well, I'm pretty sure this is the response you're looking for. And um, so what we do to me, and I tell all of my wranglers this, Um, I know it's going to sound backwards because I work on a guest ranch. Mm -hmm. Um, I work in the hospitality industry, so I I should tell you the guest comes first. But to me, the horse comes first because our horses can't speak for themselves and they need an advocate. So I am that advocate that says, hey, um, my horse won't stop backing up. Well, look at your hands. Are your hands telling it to back up? Then it's just doing what you're asking it to. And so we really ask our guests... um, to kind of be mindful of that before we say, oh, sh- well, that horse just likes to back up a lot, I guess. <laughs> no, like look at yourself and, and read the situation because, and this is the beauty of a horse, they don't have ulterior motives. They're not trying to impress anyone. They're trying to survive, number one, or number two, they're doing what you think they want them to do. Both of those things, when you're interacting with them, um, are reactions that come up because of you, right? If they go into survival mode because you're around, you've done something wrong. Um, and if it's doing something contrary to what you're asking, likely it's because you're asking wrong. (laughs) And so it's, it's fun to be a a lot of our group, um, our group activities that we bring, you know, we bring corporate groups Mm -hmm. in and we work a lot with that. They, they get into the round pen and do some Liberty work and they learn about what their body language means and what mentally, you know, they're putting out there to the horse. And, and then you see them get onto their horse and maybe go do a cattle drive like you saw today. Um, and halfway through saying my horse won't, they say, Oh no, I'm not X and, and realize that, you know, they're a bigger player in the results that they're getting than they realize. It sounds like an enormous lesson in humility. Oh, absolutely. Um, mindfulness, right? Um, and how, what's the role that mindfulness plays? Well, like I said, it's, um, the amount of times I apologize to my horses in a training session, right? Um, because I might be looking for one thing and I get a completely different reaction. And as soon as I get that reaction, I've trained my mind to say, what did I do wrong? And, um, and then as soon as you, you stop and you, cause it's, it's really easy to kind of get stuck in this. I have an agenda. This is one I, what I want to get accomplished. Let's get it done. You should know how to do this. 
But horses are like people. Maybe it's not a great day for them. Maybe you skipped a step. Maybe you went faster than you should have. You didn't give the horse what it needed and you didn't work with that horse based on where it was mentally that day. And how do you translate this in your own life to dealing with humans um, of all sizes? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do my best to... It's a good question. It was for, I guess I should start with the difference between a horse and a human, we, we've just said, horses don't have ulterior motives. Um, and it's, I joke with my guests, but I say the more that I work with horses, the more that I lose faith in most humans. <laughs> um, and I say it a little bit in jest and everyone kind of giggles because it's probably 45 minutes into a ride and we've all bonded <laughs> over the fact that, hey, maybe we, we are mindful and we can steer our horses and get positive results. But um, it is uh, actually a woman that came um, to look at the ranch to book a group potentially in a few years she said something that was really impactful to me that it, it without realizing it is so applicable pardon me applicable to this this style of horsemanship and that is to assume that everyone is operating on their best intentions so i mean if you think about it it's the same as um as all of this this horsemanship that we've been talking about um and I would say that's probably the biggest way to kind of tie it back in is that, yes, do I know that there might be ulterior motives? Absolutely. Assume that they're um, operating under their best intentions, and then at least it puts you into a mindset where you can approach it in a way that is now kind of positive and productive and um, it gives them the benefit of the doubt because that's the thing that we're doing with the horse. I might have to kick a horse really hard um, to ask it to go. And I tell everybody this, the next time you ask it to go, don't start out real hard. Start out with real gentle taps. Give it the benefit of the doubt that it has learned. Um, and so, so yeah, absolutely. Applying that same, uh, whether it's with my Wranglers um, and being honest with them, hey, I'm not sure what I'm doing can we collaborate on this? Or if you think that there's a better way, having an open line of communication, because that horse, I'm constantly listening to that horse and reading its body language and how did it move, it, move its feet? When did it move its feet? What did I do to maybe cause that? Um, and I guess the, thing. The, notion, the notion of creating partnerships rather than master-servant relationships mm -hmm. must, in your everyday life, um, I mean, that must carry over somehow. It absolutely does. I, what I find really interesting, um, and again, it could be that I'm just not great at it yet in the human world. <laughs> uh, I mean, by no means do I do I tout myself as being great at it uh, when I work with horses either. I'm, I'm always growing and always learning and always apologizing. But what's really interesting is, I mean, a horse knows when you don't know, but they're mm -hmm. very forgiving as long as you go in it with the right intention. Mm -hmm. um, you can make all the mistakes you want and they're forgiving of that. Um, when you... And so, so knowing that and knowing that, oh, maybe there's sometimes less forgiveness in the human world, starting out with a, hey, I'm not sure about this. This is my best uh, kind of course of action. What I find so interesting is so many people are kind of taken aback by it. The honesty of like, what do you mean you don't know? Right, you're supposed to be the expert here. Exactly. Why, why are you saying that? Uh -huh. and, then, and then teaching someone like, no, it's okay to be collaborative. Let's all learn together. And that's, that's always kind of a fun journey to take because now light bulbs start going off in other people's heads like, oh, I can, I can let down my guard. Um, and oh, wow, doesn't that kind of bring up a, a cooler result and can't I learn more? It seems like there's a lot of leadership skill mm -hmm. involved here with the horses, but then with the team, mm -hmm. just um, 
a certain generosity. But of course, you don't want to, on the other hand, be taken advantage of, right? So you make yourself vulnerable. You don't really have ulterior motives except for the best outcome. Um, do you ever feel like it could make you um, vulnerable to more challenging situations? With horses or with people? Take your choice. <laughs> um, I think no with the horses. Um, I've put myself into some pretty sticky situations with our Mustangs as brand new untouched horses in tight spaces uh, where I know that I would, if the Mustang had done anything terrible to me, it would have very much been my own, own fault. Um, and like I said, they're always forgiving. Um, so I, I've never, I've never felt open in that sense to any kind of negative, um, consequence. I think some, and I don't know, I haven't figured out, and this is completely honest. And again, I don't actually know if I'm correct, but I feel like maybe a generational thing, um, be, I'm in my early thirties. Many of the people that, that work for me are quite a bit younger. Um, it, it is definitely a shock to hear, to hear that vulnerability come out of somebody who's supposed to be your boss. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you do, you lose some of the kids to like, well, if she doesn't know, then I guess I'm not turning to her for any kind of answers. Um, but I would, that's okay. Um, you can't reach everybody. You can't please all of the people all of the time. So the ones that are still interested in the ones that can appreciate it, you know, will keep We'll keep collaborating and the ones that don't you know maybe they'll see the results and say well maybe she does have something to offer and she knows something <laughs> <laughs> you definitely know something and everybody on this ranch worships you everyone everywhere i go they're like have you met jackie oh my goodness. <laughs> quite famous um that's not why i do this just for the record <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna hear about mustangs stay with us This episode is brought to you by Cowgirl Creamery, makers of some of the best organic cheeses. Founded by Sue Conley and Peggy Smith, Cowgirl Creamery has been awarded countless times for their products ranging from aged cheeses like Mount Tam, Red Hawk, and Wagon Wheel, to fresh cheeses like Fromage Blanc and Clabbered Cottage Cheese. For more information, head to cowgirlcreamery.com. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Speaking Broadly. I'm out in Montana on a ranch called Paws Up, and I'm speaking to an expert horsewoman, Jackie, and she has a program here where she rescues Mustangs. Is that would be a right way to say it or not really? Adopts Mustangs. Adopts. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about, um, <clears throat> I mean, honestly, we were talking about being honest earlier in the show. Um, honestly, I always thought of a Mustang as a car. So um, <laughs> my knowledge of Mustangs as animals is is slim. Uh, what is a Mustang? What's the challenges with, with Mustangs, and how are you working with them? Uh, so great questions, and you are not the only one. Most of our Mustang demos, they say, who, raise your hand if you know anything about Mustangs. And most people, you get a car joke. Yeah. <laughs> So most people don't realize that we have wild herds of free roaming horses that still live on public land in the continental United States. 
Um, they are technically they are feral horses. Um, they are horses that uh, the Spaniards had originally uh, brought over Cortez um, and traded with the people uh, down south, and um, eventually those horses kind of free ranged and worked their way uh, worked their way into the United States into the Great Basin area. So there's still large Mustang populations in Oregon and Nevada and Arizona and. Um, uh, oh gosh, uh, even in Montana, the prior Mustangs are a very nice isolated herd. And in Utah, we've got several. Um, but so they live freely on public land. In the 1970s, the government passed an act called the Wild, uh, the Free Wild Horse and Burrow Roaming Act, something to that effect. And um, it protected them from being able to be hunted. Prior to that, people could just go out and shoot and kill wild horses the same way that they could do it with deer and with elk and with moose and with bear we hunt lots of animals uh in this country uh so in the 70s the government decided that the mustang was quintessential part an iconic piece of our history um, and for that reason they protected them the issue with that became um the statistic is something that uh Mustangs reproduce at a rate of 20% herd increase per year. So by the fifth year, your herd size has doubled, right? Wow. Um, and with cities growing up every which direction, with highways everywhere, with um, fencing, they they can't uh, migrate the way that they once did. So they sit on the same, it could be 10,000 acres, it could be 100,000 acres of land, but even within that, there are only so many water sources. So they sit in specific areas. They decimate water sources. Um, and more important, well, not more importantly, but um, in, in a rancher's eyes, more importantly, uh, <laughs> that rancher relies on that public land to graze their cattle. Um, and so, of course, the government, um, trying to be as thoughtful as possible, they go out every year and they assess the forage on that public land. And um, they have to figure out whether the forage and the waterways are enough to sustain not only the Mustang, but the deer, the elk, everything else that lives there, and also maybe 500 head of cattle. And if it can't, then they go to that rancher, they say, hey, you know what, you're going to have to find something else to do with your cows. Um, so, of course, the rancher is kind of upset. Um, a lot of people view Mustangs as like the mutt of the dog pound, um, not really good for anything, not bred for anything. They just go out and they create a dust bowl effect. Um, so what the government is also trying to do to um, be good stewards of the land is that they do round up the Mustangs several times a year from these different large herds. They keep them in holding facilities and then anybody can adopt them. It costs next to nothing. The adoption process is very similar to uh, adopting a child. So you've got to have references and they look at uh, where you're going to keep the Mustang to make sure that's okay. Um, and if you pass all of that, then you can, um, for $125, a Mustang is yours. Wow, that is so cheap. That is incredibly cheap, but don't be fooled by the very low price tag because <laughs> these are horses whose only human interactions have been being rounded up via helicopter. Oh boy. Uh, push into a facility where they push them into what's called a squeeze chute. It's um, a very narrow little passageway with hydraulic sides and they squeeze the Mustang, flip it on its side. They do its... They trim its feet, they give it its vaccinations, they castrate them. It Ugh. is the only way to handle this wild animal because certainly these animals are not going to say, oh yeah, just pick my foot up, it'll be fine. Wow. Um, but so everything is very traumatic from the day that they're rounded up until the day that um, 
that a person adopts them. And I have to give credit to the government for taking the time and putting the money and really the taxpayer dollars into caring for these animals. Um, but they have to do it in kind of the quickest, most efficient way possible. Um, and so, so then you adopt these Mustangs. We've got five on property now and it's your job to convince them that not only are you not a threat, but Hey, we could actually be friends and maybe I can go do a job on you and sit on your back one day like a, <laughs> like a mountain lion would, but I promise I'm not going to eat you. So are they harder to make a partner of than the horses? You know, I mean, it depends, I guess, on the type of horse. Um, we have we have a couple um, yearlings that we just purchased, and we're going to imprint them, which means that we'll spend enough time with them that we essentially become like a, a mother or father figure to them. And um, so at that point, no, that the domestic imprinted mm-hmm. horse is much easier. And that's what you see in most domestic horses is something that's been handled quite a bit. We actually buy a lot of what we call range ponies, domestic horses that were bred domestically, and then the rancher just didn't have time for them and kicked them out onto their um, 10,000 acre property, never to be seen again until we decide to buy them. So essentially as as close to a Mustang as you could get, right? Um, But even within those groups, whether it's a domestic wild horse or a Mustang, um, mindedness is a thing. Just like with people, um, there's some horses that are just real gentle. I'm riding one Tonto. Um, he's incredible. I trust him with my life within a month. I was cruising around on him in a saddle doing jobs. Uh, never once has he given me any reason to doubt him. He's never been mean. He just kind of wants to be a lap dog most of the time. <laughs> um, but then you get other Mustangs that, you know, especially the older ones who have survived longer in the wild. And I think just that alone, why do I need you human? I, I was fine for five years by myself. I survived quite a bit worse than what you're trying to show me. Um, but in this style that we practice this vaquero style, um, even those ones you can really reach. Like very seldom have I said, I just, there's nothing we can do for this horse. Wow. And do you, do you ever have groups of like kids with, um, of all abilities and trying to reach through the, to kids who might be hard to reach here at the ranch? Has that happened at all? Absolutely. And, um, I actually was a teacher for a few years prior to becoming a, a, a horseman full time. And, um, whether it's the kids that come to the resort or the kids that were at, uh, the school that I taught for, which was kind of a last chance school in a small Mm. mountain town. Um, gosh, I just, I believe wholeheartedly we should put horse programs into every single school in the country, um, because it's so applicable and how to reach out to, uh, that kid and communicate with that kid. Um, you see them blossom when they work with the horse and they might not be interested in it at first, but gosh, when they figure out how to get that horse interested in them mm-hmm. and now they say, wait a minute, something's interested in me. Um, it's like, a, it, there's an aha moment for them and they just kind of open up. Um, and, you know. but what's the, what, what do you think it is that opens it up for them? I mean, it's, you said that it's, they see that they're communicating with the horse, but is it that they haven't been able to communicate so clearly with the people around them or that it, you know, just takes it off of another plane where they have been having challenges. Like, is it, um, so that's a good question. I, I always hear, um, some, one, one of the horsemen that I follow and that I admire, um, 
says horses are an equalizer. Um, and I think what that means, you said a little bit earlier about it, people who work with horses, it, it must be a very humbling experience. And it absolutely is. You could come in and you, you think you're a top hand and gosh, you don't give that horse what it offers. And, um, and you can't get anything done with that horse. So same thing with kids. I think that kids put on masks a lot. I'm confident. I'm a bully. I don't need this. I'm not interested. But as we've kind of talked, um, horses can see past that, right? At what really you are carrying your body as. And so when that horse doesn't fall for their gimmicks, you know, um, now they're, they're forced to kind of take that mask off. Right. Um, and, and that's pretty neat. Right. So you get the, the bully that isn't a bully because he's truly a mean kid or that cause she's a mean kid, but because there's some kind of uncertainty or we're scared or whatever it might be. And, um, that horse can kind of read that and read what it needs. And then you work with the kid to give the horse what it needs. So, so you said you were teaching before you mm-hmm. um, came here. Tell me a little bit about how you became a, a you call yourself a horseman, not a horsewoman. Is that same, same. same thing? I wasn't sure, you know, if horse people are gendered, <laughs> but, um, I mean, probably in this day and age. <laughs> so, um, how did you choose this life? What were you doing before? That's a good question. Um, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I'm totally a valley girl. Um, okay, that's amazing. This yeah. is a very different kind of valley. <laughs> a very different kind. The Blackfoot Valley is the only valley I think I can uh, can love now. But um, I am the first daughter of uh, immigrant parents. My parents both immigrated here from Hungary um, years and years ago, and the story that they tell is that they each came with two suitcases a piece. And one of those suitcases had all their vinyl records of all the American music that they weren't allowed to listen to in socialist Hungary. Um, and they had nothing. And all they had was this idea of an American dream and that our kids are going to grow up with more than we did. And I really disappointed my mom when I first told her, Hey, I'm not going to be a doctor or a lawyer like you want me to. Cause my dream is to be a teacher. I think I've got something to offer. (laughs) Um, And then a few years out of teaching, which I loved to do and I loved the kids, I was also working on a ranch um, at the same time. And there was just something about the horses and that lifestyle um, that really spoke to me. So then when I told her, I'm not even going to teach anymore. I'm going to go ride a horse for a living. (laughs) It was a pretty big falling out, um, and we're just now kind of starting Is to... that right? I mean, an actual falling out. Like, Oh, she didn't come to visit me. She, really? It took her... Um, I don't know that she's actually been here to visit me. She's passed through on her way to Glacier with my sister, and so, of course, the uh, there's the obligatory stop by. Um, but it's never been a, hey, I want to embrace what it is that you do, and I'm happy that you're happy. And I think that that's a little bit of a cultural thing, too. Um, but gosh, yeah, it's, and I don't blame her. I mean, there's something, there's a difference between, oh, I disappointed my mother, which so many of us uh-huh. do, and no, like, you did not fulfill what I set out for you. And yeah, the falling out was probably mostly my fault, though, because I'm the strong person that says, if you can't be happy that I'm happy, I'm not interested in having a relationship. Okay. Um, so I, I take full responsibility, I think. Well, 90%, 80%. So 
We'll call it 50-50. Okay. <laughs> I take at least 50% of the blame for it. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was teaching and, um, I had this dream of working in Los Angeles in my skinny jeans and my cute teacher heels and my blazer. And I was going to teach 12th grade literature and, um, the modernist because kids need to know about modernism. And here I am in my jeans and my cowboy boots and my cowboy hat getting dusty and dirty every day. But I, I still teach. I just do it. But you certainly do teach and very, (laughs) very important teaching at that. Um, and lots of different types of people, different types of people. And, and it's, it's, I'm very fortunate. I tell everybody that I have the best job on property. I really do. So I'm just curious about your sister. Did she turn out to be the perfect daughter? Um, she is a nurse and the cardiac ICU up in, at Stanford in Northern California, um, she's engaged, so she's getting like all the brownie points. Right. Right. She's got a, a future husband, and <laughs> she's in the medical profession, and they get along really well. But you know what? She's she's probably a better human than me because she's got that she that she can apply that patience we've been talking about even to my mother, <laughs> and that's where I still need to maybe grow a little bit. And we're getting there. Um, but she and I have a pretty good relationship. I'm proud of her and everything that she does. That's great. As you've applied so many, you know, sort of mindfulness skills to this world, at some point it'll be the time to do it with your mom. But she needs to, she needs to come out too. It, it, well, because with horses, it's 50-50. The horse does give something. There's, we talk a lot about this. You can teach a horse to try for you. And we work really hard. And of course, teaching a horse to try comes a lot from how you approach the horse and when you reward a behavior and when you um, acknowledge mm-hmm. that they've, they've tried what you're looking for. Um, but at the end of the day, I expect all of my horses to try. You might not know the answer. You mm-hmm. might not understand. You might come across a situation that's foreign to you or threatening to you, whatever it might be. All I ask is that you try. Don't just react mm-hmm. with your gut. Try like we've taught. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, I mean, to be hopefully not too fair to your mother, but um, it sounds like you're being stubborn, which you would never do with a horse. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's why I said I'm at least (laughs) 50-50 part of the problem, if not more. Yeah. Um, And do you you ever go back to L.A.? You know, I used to quite a bit, um, but once you detox from that pace of life... Um, it's really hard to go back. Everything's a little bit slower. You've got a little bit more time here. I was five minutes late to this meeting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was seven, so it was fine. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So it worked out. Um, but it's not of huge interest to me anymore. Yeah. Tell me what it is like to live here since I am not totally type A, but I'm born and bred in New York City. And being here, even I run out of time. Same thing. Like, I'm late to this. How do I run out of time when all I'm doing here is... Um, you know, learning, taking cooking classes or whatever, mm-hmm. riding a horse. Yeah. I mean, how do you spend your time? Um, <laughs> if you ask, so I guess the best way I could answer that is with a uh, short story. My head wrangler just recently left. She's getting engaged. And so they moved back uh, to a different part of Montana. And she told my now future or my, my then future head wrangler, uh, when she was kind of passing the torch along was make sure she eats, make sure she gets out sometimes. Oh no. Um, was that to the horse or to you? No, that was to, that was about me. Okay. Um, <laughs> because how do I spend my time? 
I spend it probably working a horse. Um, I, I have figured out how to not have to go to town a lot. Um, but that's just probably me and kind of the passion behind it. Um, it's probably not as healthy as I, I want to believe that it is. Um, but it's really easy. I mean, the people can't see what we're surrounded by, but we, we sit in a valley surrounded by mountains of the Continental Divide and um, the Blackfoot River runs through the property and there's bald eagle nests everywhere and the golden eagles are soaring and the elk and the deer and uh, we've got more horses than I can mention on property and bison on property. All you, you, you need food, you need drink, you need your surroundings and... And That's do you spend time reading or is it like, do you spend any time in the world of the internet or is you really are part of nature and this world here, which is quite active? Oh no, definitely. I, <laughs> I'm still, so most of the books on my bedside table right now, I, I tend to read two or three books at a time. Most of them are horsemanship books, uh -huh. um, reading the philosophies of the masters that came before me. Um, but that's not to say I don't have a TV in my, my bedroom as well. Most of the DVDs on my TV stand are also horsemanship oh related, <laughs> but I do turn on the Netflix. Um, I'm, I am connected social media wise. So Instagram and Facebook. I'm not encouraging you to do it. I would love to find someone who has no use for it whatsoever. Ever. And I, I laugh. I, I think that there's a part of me of the LA in me. I always have my cell phone with me uh -huh. always. Okay. Um, and most like if, if I was really a hardcore horseman, yeah. it'd be off or it'd be away from me. Yeah. So the, yeah, I haven't quite div dove in off the deep end. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Okay. I have two, two last questions. One, um, I asked you to people to teach me something that you know how to do in words. So, for example, someone taught me how to fold a pair of pants. Um, is there anything that you can... Like, we're sitting in two chairs in a loft. Um, is there anything you can teach me to do in words? Uh, is it regarding my... You could do anything at all. It could be, you know, how to peel a lemon. But probably won't be that. That's a great question. I'm going to go back to something that has to do with cattle and horses, probably. Great. Um, so you're going to teach a horse how to move away from you in an area, because horses need to be respectful of your space um, and make space for you. Uh, so what you're going to do is you're standing in the round pen with your horse uh, perpendicular to you, as I want you to stand up as straight as you can, shoulders back. Um, and I want you to walk with, um, purpose and with energy at the horse's midsection. Um, and as you do so, go ahead and point a hand in the direction that you'd like that horse to move off. If it's facing, uh, your left, go ahead and point your hand to the left. And, um, I want you to think walk. Um, and as soon as that horse walks, um, you are going to stop your feet completely. You might even take a few steps back. Um, and the reason you're doing that is because uh, your advance is a type of pressure, makes the horse maybe slightly uncomfortable. And when it's uh, done what you've asked it to, you're going to release that pressure and it's going to feel that reward. Um, it's, you're taking away a discomfort um, and it's going to internalize forever when she stands tall, when she stands square, and when she walks with purpose. I need to make space for her. 
Oh, that's beautiful. And I think a great lesson for humans, mm -hmm. right? I mean, not maybe towards their midsection, <laughs> but, <laughs> but a good way to approach. Mm -hmm. And is there one book that you've read or you're reading that you feel would be really interesting for a general, um, you know, for an audience like that of speaking broadly, but who wants to learn about your world? Oh boy. Um, all of mine go so much into kind of the minutia of it. Um, I'm reading books by Ray Hunt, Bill Dorrance, um, and Tom Dorrance, who are uh, kind of the, the pioneers of this style of horsemanship that kind of made it accessible uh, to um, the everyday horseman um, or rancher. Um, gosh, I, I mean secretly, uh, because I was a, a lit major, I was an English major. Um, you can, yeah, recommend something else. I'm a Shakespeare nut. Um, I, I love, I loved teaching him because the second that you say Shakespeare to a group of, um, high school kids, everyone, oh, and I used to have teachers come into my class, um, as we're discussing Shakespeare in my classroom with my, my middle school or my high school kids. And they, they say, how do you get them to talk about it so much? And they're just excited. Um, Shakespeare was a funny, funny writer and he had a lot to offer. So uh, whether it's reading, I, I love his plays. Um, the comedies, um, are my favorite personally. Um, that's what I would go for. Give him a chance. Don't scoff when you hear that Shakespeare's <laughs> good reading. Okay. Which of the, which of the comedies? Oh, I mean, Twelfth Night and um, Gosh, Taming of the Shrew and Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, you 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 name it, really. Um, Twelfth Night was a really good one. I really enjoyed teaching that one to my um, seventh and eighth graders. My last year teaching. That's great. My my son just acted in Shakespeare, and we were going over. He wrote a sonnet um, two days ago, oh. and um, it, it was a great it was a great sonnet. But he was reviewing a bunch of sonnets with. Uh, my husband, and they were just like, oh my God, it's all sex jokes. I had never realized there's so many sex jokes it in Shakespeare. Is. And so <laughs> figuring out how to, to say, hey, he wasn't just a crazy prude yeah. uh, without, you know, making it weird uh, was always kind of fun. But yeah, as soon as they're like, oh, this guy's actually got kind of a twisted sense of humor, <laughs> you pull the kids in and now they're analyzing it. And um, yeah, it's a it was, it was a fun experience. That's great. Well, Jackie, thank you for spending some time with me today. Um, I know you are very busy around here, so thank you. Oh, no, thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this very special episode of Speaking Broadly from Montana. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>